Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen. Another misunderstood Springsteen song that people think is about, you know, how great things were in the old days. It's not. It's about a guy who lives in the past and can't stop living in the past. It's like Born in the USA, right? Born in the USA is this song that Ronald Reagan wanted to use as his campaign song in 1984. And asked the, the Reagan camp asked Bruce Springsteen's manager, can we use Born in the USA? And Springsteen said, have you listened to it? It's about a guy who... His country turns his back on him. Was that the same year that Reagan's campaign slogan was Make America Great Again? It was something like that, yeah. <laughs> We've heard that a lot recently. So Rick Westhead is our senior correspondent in the studio with us. Rick has done some groundbreaking work the last few years for us on the plight of ex-players, the issues in terms of their health, the effects of concussions, the issue of CTE, and brain injury to players and the long-term impact of it. And tomorrow on SportsCenter, uh, a piece that I've seen the trailer for, I've not seen the story yet, Rick, Finding Murph, about Joe Murphy. Right, so this is a story that uh, takes us, I guess we've been working on this for about three, four months now. And I first got a call uh, from Rick Ralph in, you know, out west saying, hey, have you heard about what's going on with Joe Murphy? And I said, no. Um, didn't know a ton about Joe Murphy's career, to be honest. And he mentioned that uh, Trevor Kidd and a few other former NHL players had told him that their friends and colleagues in Kenora, Ontario, uh, had said that Joe Murphy was homeless in Kenora. Now, and- Joe, Joe Murphy, by the way, f- former first overall pick in the National Hockey League draft, um, a, a very good NHL player, uh, very productive, um, Played nearly 800 games yeah. in the NHL. Won a Stanley Cup yeah. with the Edmonton Oilers. Part of the kid line. Part of the kid line in Edmonton with uh, Martin Jelena and Adam Graves. So this is not a. This is this was a, a regular NHL player who was you could say a very well known player for a long time. Sure, and felt kind of fell off the radar radar after he left the NHL in 2001. And even that was under kind of bizarre circumstances. Joe was with Washington at the time, and the team was on a road trip to New York. Uh, him and a few other players went out to a nightclub after a game. He left the nightclub on his own, according to newspaper accounts of the time. Right. And he was attacked by someone on the street. And with th- this person took a, a bottle, a broken bottle, and cut Joe across the face. And, you know, a very, very bad injury. And Joe wound up in hospital. And had, that was the end of his NHL career. Washington right. released him shortly thereafter. So, for, I want to. there's a lot of things to talk about here. But first of all, Tell us about, and you went through this with Matt Johnson, looking for Matt Johnson of the LA Kings. Finding a former player is not as easy as it sounds. So you hear this, that that Joe Murphy might be homeless in Kenora, Ontario. How do you go about finding him? How do you go about contacting him? And, And how do you go about telling his story? Well, the first step is trying to determine whether it's true or not. So we reached out to the Ontario Provincial Police and asked them if they'd had any encounters with him. And, you know, this is, it's an interesting kind of illustration about how different the U.S. and the Canadian systems are. Our right to privacy in Canada is much different than in the United States. For right. instance, if you're arrested in Canada, there's no way a reporter can get a copy of the police report no. or of your mugshot. Where in the U.S., that's, you can get that the day it happens. So the OPP uh, would not talk to us about that. They said, you know, if he's here, we can't confirm it. You know, he's a private individual. Mm-hmm. He has a right to his privacy. So we had to make a call about how to move forward. 
we decided that it was worth taking a gamble on. And so basically we took a crew and we flew to Winnipeg. We met up with Trevor Kidd and we drove with him to Kenora and beautiful town for those who haven't yeah. been there and, and basically drove through the city and figured, well, we'll take a couple of days at this. And if we find them, that's great. We'll see if they'll talk to us. And if we don't find them, you know, it was a gamble worth taking. And our first drive through the town, I remember, uh, you know, we'd kind of almost reached the end of Kenora. If, I think if you drive west to east through the town, sort of the last hub of buildings, there's a, uh, a Walmart and a Canadian Tire and a Tim Hortons, and literally saw him out front, uh, outside of a store on that, uh, you know, on that strip of, of road. And so Trevor Kidd got out first and went to talk to Joe, and we just hung back and kind of kept our distance and gave him his privacy. And after five minutes or so, Trevor asked Joe if he'd agree to talk to us. You know, important to point out that Trevor was not mic'd up for any of this. Mm -hmm. We completely respected Joe's privacy, and only after he said, yes, I'm willing to talk to you, did we approach him. And so at that point, we spent the better part of, I guess, three days with Joe just you know, in different parts of town. Um, is he homeless? Over meals. Yeah, he's homeless. He has been living in the bush on, on the floor of a forest. He's been living in a homeless shelter in Kenora, and he's been spending some nights in the camper of a local Kenora resident who said, you can stay in this camper in exchange for cutting some firewood for me. So his situation has been as, about as desperate as you could be. How did he get there? Uh, good question. The, as, and it's really tough to put together a timeline on this. Um, you should just point out as well, after we talked to Joe and he said yes, he wanted to, to, to tell his story and, and be public about this, we also contacted his sister, mm -hmm. Kathy, who lives in the Muskoka area. Um, she, after We said, get, take some time and think about whether you want to participate in this story, and she did. And then she introduced us to Joe's ex-wife and Joe's daughter, and all of them said it's important to have this story told. Right. If any one of those people, Joe, obviously, uh, first and foremost, had said, no, we don't, we don't want to share this story, we would have just moved on to, to something else and still tried to see if we could make an offer of help or make a difference to him, but we definitely wouldn't have done his story, but he wanted it done. Um, back to your question about kind of the chronology of events. Um, Joe was actually living in South America in the last couple of years. He was in Peru for a time. He was in Costa Rica for a time. He was deported last year from Costa Rica. And after he arrived back in Toronto, uh, made his way to the Belleville and Kingston area. Uh, in November, he was charged with mischief after uh, trashing a hotel room there. I spoke to the Crown Attorney who prosecuted the case, and he told me that in 99% of these cases, usually it's a local who'd be charged with something like that and right. they get a conditional discharge, meaning you do you pay a small fine, you're on probation, and if you don't do anything against the law again for a year, your record's wiped clean. Joe pleaded guilty, which was an incredible rarity. So he wound up um, being sent to Kenora to serve uh, a week in jail. And so that's how he wound up in the Kenora region, as best as I can tell. But how does a player who leaves the game in 2001 wind up on that journey to homelessness what 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 is the i wish i had a clear cut answer what does he for think? that what, what he is, thinks that it's a combination of things um you know it's it's amazing the number of people who will say well you made 15 to 20 million dollars in your career this is all on you you should have managed your money better you should have made better choices and you know what to his credit joe says 
that exact thing. He says, I should have made better choices. He's open about his drug use after he left the game. But he also talks about the types of prescription medications that he received while he was in the NHL, given by teams, given by team trainers, so that he wouldn't miss time. And he wonders himself whether the drugs that he took to remain an active NHL player when he left the game may have exacerbated his situation. He talks about gambling. He talked to us about, I don't think we mentioned this in the piece actually, but he talked about how he spent, he blew $950,000 in one weekend in Las Vegas. So, you know, clearly it's someone who's struggled with mental health issues through the years. It's someone who talks about the long-term consequences of repeated head trauma Mm -hmm. that he suffered while playing in the NHL and about in his opinion the lack of care that he their lack of proper care that he received for those again we have this expectation that players know their body better than anybody or this understanding and that you ask a player hey are you okay to go back in that the player is actually be able to make a, a, a fair judgment and make that call so it's a it's a tough one because you and I have talked about this before, and, and you have done, as I said, really groundbreaking work on, on talking about an issue that, for some reason, people don't want to discuss. Well, the reason they don't want to discuss it is because no one wants to be blacklisted by the NHL. No one wants to right. ask those kinds of questions that are going to lead to the NHL saying, it's time to shut this down. It's, this is too much. In Joe Murphy's case, there was a lot of discussion during his career that he may have had mental health issues. And at that time, there was not Bell Let's Talk. There was not team psychologists. There was not the idea that it's okay to talk about mental health. And we've seen in the NBA of late, Paul Pierce, Kevin Love, and Chris Bosh have talked about anxiety and mental health issues they've faced. And and our Michael Landsberg has been very open about it. And it's a very different time now, but it wasn't then. And, And so... How difficult is it to get players? I'm impressed that Joe Murphy you know, accepts responsibility. How difficult, when you deal with these players, is it to get them to talk about these things? Well, it's not easy. Uh, it was a different time. And again, we've got to be careful not to see things that happened with Joe Murphy in the 90s and 2000s through the lens of 2018. Right. It, it was a different time. However, the 90s and the early 2000s, it's not like penicillin had just been invented. We're not talking about the 19. 19- 20s or 30s, right? I would think that we were far enough along with our medical expertise and, and, you know, awareness in that industry to have known that somebody who's unconscious on the ice probably shouldn't be going back into games for a period of time. I mean, in boxing in New York State in the 1950s, and this again, this was after a rash of deaths in that sport, which the NHL has not seen. But in boxing, if you were knocked unconscious during a fight in the 50s in New York, you couldn't go back into the ring even to train. Right. So, you know, the NHL might not have been headquartered in New York in the 50s, but it had at least one team there with team trainers and doctors. Why wouldn't they be learning from the lessons that boxing had learned? So, in a larger sense, you've talked to us about the fact that the the, the judge in Minnesota dismissed the, the class action uh, case for the players against the NHL. So now they would have to pursue it individually. The number of players who volunteered to be tested this summer, very low. Was it 10 players? Yeah, it was about that. They had a real tough time. This was, a, again, being tested. Dr. DJ Cook's a neurologist in Kingston. Um, you know, yeah. he uh, 
one of the leaders in his field, Gord Downey, was one of his yeah. patients. And he talked, there were several hundred that went to see him a year ago when there was funding for this. His funding since dried up, and he had uh, fewer than 10 NHL players. He says he has several hundred uh, Canadian Hockey League and NHL players on a waiting list. So when that flow of money does start to pick up again, presumably more players are going to want to go in. And the reason they want to go to him is because of confidentiality. If you have been struggling... You're, let's say you're a free agent the next season. You have been struggling with headaches or you know what you think might be a brain problem. Perhaps the last thing you want to do is alert your team or other teams to, to, to what's going on in your head. You might want to try to preserve your ability to get a larger contract later. Mark Savard went through hell. I mean, Mark, you know, when, when he retired and a lot of other guys have had the same thing, family members have reached out to you, former players have reached out to you. How widespread is this? Impossible to say. We know Joe's not the only one. I mean, we've heard over the last months about Matt Johnson, like you mentioned, Stephen Pete, Murphy. Um, if players aren't homeless, we know that some are definitely living below the poverty line, just from the anecdotal stories that I hear. I couldn't say how many of them. Um, but again, this is a league that it, it's never been better, right? It's making more than $4 billion a year in revenue. And does it have an obligation to former players? Maybe not. Maybe it does not have a financial or a legal obligation to them. But let me turn it back to you, Gord. Does the NHL have a moral obligation? Well, that's, that's the question. And, and I think that, you know, talking to lawyers, as I have, about the NFL case, which was settled, and the NHL case, which, you know, is sort of in limbo now, lawyers will make the case on behalf of the, of the NHL. Just if, if, if Rick West had as a former player, I would say to you, Rick, how many concussions did you have before you got to the NHL? I'd say I don't know, and that's that's a great defense. Yeah, right. Did you have any in minor hockey, junior hockey, the American League? Um, did you fully report your symptoms? We have your medical records here. Did you report to us that you had symptoms? Um, did you, you know, did you when you were coming back to play? Did you follow the protocols properly? Are you alleging that we withheld information from you because CTE wasn't discovered until written about until two thousand eight? You retired in two thousand and five. Did you know hockey was dangerous? Were you aware that there's a risk to playing hockey? All these questions, to your point, legally the NHL might not have an obligation. And I would put the Players Association in this as well. But morally, I think they do have an obligation. And one thing that former players talk about is it's not the NHL ex-players association. The interest that the NHLPA seems to have in its members diminishes greatly once they leave the league. That's the impression a lot of former players have. Is that fair? I think it's completely fair, but you asked me a question earlier about you know why this doesn't get more attention, and you're obviously as tied in as anybody is with active and retired players. Why do you think it doesn't get more attention? I, I would have thought this would be the single biggest story in hockey right now about this realization that there is a chance that players who play this game could end up with a real debilitating brain injury later, mm-hmm. and I just don't see people who are in the game every day um, engaged on it. I don't. I mean, we talked to Paul Tracy yesterday, and there was that there was a crash at Indy, and, and Paul's had you know three good friends die in Indy car crashes, and we asked him the question about you know how do you get back in the car when you see these things, and he said you just put it out of your mind. You just it's it's almost like you say it can't happen to me, and and I I know players well who have had a series of concussions. And you try to have the conversation with them. Are you worried about your long-term health? Are you worried about what it's going to look like when you're 50, 55, 60? Are you worried about that? And they don't want to talk about it. And, and I, I think it's, it's understandable in a sense that it's, it's fear. It's, it's, you know, if, if you've got a history of cancer in your family, 
you don't want to talk about cancer. It's it's understandable. It's 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 in your mind for sure. I just don't know how you can convince players coming in to be more mindful of their health. They don't pay attention. I mean, we went through this for years with not paying attention to what the the union was doing, and 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 they they probably still don't as much as they used to, or they, they still probably pay as little attention as they used to. They want to play hockey. You're making the argument that the players get the leadership they deserve? I think in a lot of cases they do. I think they don't ask hard questions. And I think when they do ask hard questions, quite often they get shut down. They get shouted down behind closed doors. And and so I guess what I'm saying to you is, do the players themselves have an obligation to say, this is our health. We need to do something. Where, where are the players going to get the counsel and the, and the advice from that? Are they going to get it from NHL player agents? But, but ultimately, Rick, isn't it your responsibility to take care of your health? I mean, if, I, if, I go to, if I've got real abdominal pain and I go to my doctor for my medical and don't tell them about the abdominal pain and then my appendix ruptures and I get really sick, that's not my doctor's fault. No, you're right. But if you're working in a factory and your employer understands that there's something, a workplace hazard there and doesn't say anything about it, and doesn't tell you about it, and doesn't do anything to so learn what is about that? it. So what is that? What, what, what are you saying that the NHL knew that it wasn't telling the players? I'm, I'm not saying that the NHL has known anything, but there's four research centers across North America that do cutting-edge research right. on brain injuries. Gord, you tell me how many of those the NHL is contributing money to. I can, I can guess zero. Zero. <laughs> um, the NHL for 20 years has had a concussion working group trying to research and trying to come up with protocols. In that time, how many neurologists, how many doctors have gone to medical school have been on that working group? I'm going to guess zero. Zero. Yeah, so... So the question yeah. isn't what is what have they held the, the held back is it, to me the question is could they be doing better could they be doing more and yeah. and so my my thing is you know the National Football League is having this ongoing conversation this week especially about the new rules about head hits and and, and helmet hits the fact of the matter is it's not going to matter what lawyers do it's not going to matter what the league does there's going to come a time when parents might not let the kid not enough parents will let their kids play the sport it, it won't be a lawsuit that brings it, it'll be the fact that a parent's going to say, you know what, Johnny, you can't play hockey, and, or more to the point, football. You can't play football because I don't think it's safe for you. Well, and that's already happening. The Los Angeles Times yesterday did a story on this where they yeah. talked about the real decline in youth participation in football in California. So that's already happening in that sport. Right. I don't think we've seen that yet in hockey. We haven't. So you, you, the work goes on, and, and you keep finding, you know, you keep hearing these stories. How depressing is it? Uh, well, it's not an uplifting story right now, but maybe it will be. You know, maybe it will be. Matt Johnson, we reported on right. in late December. Well, from what I understand, uh, Matt is, no, is, is back now working with the Los Angeles Kings, helping to run some hockey schools. I think it's probably a little bit too early to say that he's made a turnaround. I mean, right. it's only been seven months, but there's something positive there. I think there's also something to be said for giving someone a voice. And how many of these former players who've had struggles and hurdles and they feel, maybe they feel abandoned, maybe they feel afraid to speak out publicly, um, you know, isn't it our role as journalists, if we're journalists, to give a voice to people like that? Absolutely. And I I think it's a very, I think what you've done is a very brave thing. And it's it's unfortunate that, and I, I don't think it's any responsibility of yours, you've put it out there, it it's unfortunate that more people don't want to talk about it. And I, I guess that's the way 
things are in life, but it just it just seems that telling the truth about what happened and hey, listen, in a, in a much larger sense, and this is a sports show, but in a much larger sense, what happened in Pennsylvania with those priests and those children happened for a long time because no one would talk about it. Yeah, and again, no bravery on my part, period. This is the bravery of people like Joe, people like, you know, Mike Peluso, right. people like Dan Lacatur, uh, people like Dan Carcillo. As much as he might rub people the wrong way in hockey right now, that, that former player has become a real advocate for former NHL players uh, getting better treatment than they get right now. And you can make the argument that the NHL, you know, there are good people there. And there are. There are good people throughout hockey. There's great people at NHL teams that I, that I know, that I consider friends, and at the league office who I consider friends. That's not the question. This is a sport that's full of good people. The question is, can they be doing more for players like this? And, you know, not just me, but people like Dan Carcillo, former players across North America, probably throughout the world, would argue that, yeah, they can be doing better. This is great stuff. Uh, Finding Murph tomorrow night on Sports Center. Look forward to seeing that, and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Gord. That's Rick Westhead, senior correspondent for TSN. Uh, Finding Murph, the story of Joe Murphy, which is um, sad and sort of catches your breath for a moment when you see someone who realizes dream, and then the dream becomes a nightmare. And it's... Uh, it's a tough thing to watch, but you need to see it. So that's Rick Westhead. Our thanks to you. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk to one of the most versatile broadcasters out there. Ted Robinson is the voice of tennis on NBC, but is also the voice of the San Francisco 49ers on radio. And they've been at the epicenter of talks about helmet hits, about kneeling during the anthem, and about Jimmy Garoppolo and where he'll fit into the whole scheme of things in San Francisco. You're listening to Toronto Today on TSN 1050 and the TSN app. 1227 in Toronto is Toronto Today. I'm Gord Miller, flying solo for the first time on TSN Radio, TSN 1050, and the TSN app. Got to your vehicle lease ASAP. Over 200,000 customers per month looking to take over your lease. What a relief. Go to leasebusters.com. Coming up in a moment, we'll talk to Ted Robinson, who is the radio voice of the San Francisco 49ers, one of a handful of announcers who have broadcast games in the National Hockey League, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and the NFL. He is currently the radio voice of the San Francisco 49ers, and he's also the lead tennis voice for NBC, talking about Wimbledon for many years, the French Open, and got the U.S. Open coming up next week with some intriguing seedings coming up. Serena Williams will be the 26th seed at the U.S. Open, which is an interesting situation for the greatest female tennis player of all time. So we'll talk to Ted in a moment. That was a, a sobering conversation with, with Rick Westhead a moment ago about Joe Murphy and his plight, and he is certainly not alone. And I think the point that needs to be made is that there are, are a lot of former players out there who are hurting physically and mentally, and they need help. And the NHL does have a player assistance program for former players, but in a lot of cases the players are afraid to come forward. And hopefully the work that people like Rick Westhead is doing will lead to players being able to talk about their situation and to find a way out of it. And a lot of that has to do, unfortunately, with the injuries they suffered while playing their sport. The National Football League is trying to address that in terms of changing the way the games are called. And we're seeing in the preseason in the NFL this year in that helmet-to-helmet contact is being called a penalty and tackling improperly, putting your head down 
to make a tackle is considered improper. And so it's caused a lot of upset for a lot of people. And Richard Sherman of the 49ers has been one of the people who has been outspoken saying that they shouldn't change the way they do things. That the way players tackled before was fine and you're going to fundamentally change the way the game is played and that it's not right. And he's not the only one. The coach of the the Minnesota Vikings, Mike Zimmer, said these rules are going to cost people jobs. And I, I get where they're coming from. People don't like change. The most ridiculous comment that was made about this was by Larry Fedora, the head coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels football team, who at the season-launching press conference for the ACC said this year that football is under attack and the way football is being played is under attack. And if football goes down, our country will go down too. And he, and he kind of doubled down on it, saying that football is emblematic of America and that if you change football, you, you change the country. And I know people don't like change. And there are a lot of people in hockey that, that resist change. They didn't like the the enhanced enforcement on head penalties. And and I get where that comes from. But the fact of the matter is things probably have to change because the bottom line is maybe not enough young people will play the sport to keep it going. So to talk about that and more, let's bring in my friend Ted Robinson, who is, I think, one of the most versatile and gifted broadcasters out there. Ted, good morning to you. Hey, good morning, Gordon. Nice to hear your voice. Nice to hear yours. We were together in Pyeongchang at the Olympics. You were calling speed skating. I was doing hockey. Um, I want to. I want to start with. We'll talk tennis in a moment because we're both passionate tennis people. We'll get to that in a minute. I want to talk to you about what's going on in the NFL these days. And and obviously, Richard Sherman has been pretty outspoken about the way the games are being called. Um, what's been from your perspective doing Forty Nine er games? What's been your sort of up close analysis of what's happening? Well, Gord, I have a little different viewpoint, perhaps, than a lot of, you know, I, obviously Richard Sherman's a pretty bright guy and respect his opinion. My, my take is a little different given that I've done college football games for much of the last 20 years. And a similar rule has been in place in college football for the last five, I think, including an ejection element, which doesn't yet exist in the NFL. But the targeting foul in college football can result in ejection. Right. And and the, the the reason that I say that is that it was it's it's been a very tough transition in the college game for everybody, for the players, for the coaches, for the fans, and for the officials. They don't like being put in that position. But the game and, and all the structure that you know that we all talk about is demanding this. It isn't going to reverse. So now fast forward to your question on the NFL. This is going to be, to me, a massive growing pain in the league this year if the officials continue to call the fouls as we've seen in the first two weeks. My hope is that this is, an, it, this is like a lot of enforcement. There's an initial push, and then hopefully there's a correction in the way the game's played and guys back off once the season starts. That's what I hope. If not, there's going to be, I think, a significant fan problem. Right. And that's, and that's one of the things that has to be balanced is as much as you want safety. We talked to Paul Tracy yesterday, the, the IndyCar driver, about trying to make IndyCar racing safe. But the fact is people want cars going as fast as possible, and they like risk. Yeah, yeah the Gordon, it's funny because that's the analogy I've used around 
around us, even with some of the 49ers owners in the first two weeks of the year, as I said, if you go to a NASCAR race and you can make the car as safe as you want, you can make the driver's equipment, the harnesses as strong as you want, there's always going to be the risk of crashes. <laughs> you can't have the race without it, and football has similar things. There's always going to be the risk of a violent collision, of a significant knee injury, leg injury, uh, you know, and unfortunately, there will always be the risk of head. They're trying their best to lessen those risks to protect the players as best you can, but you can't take it out unless you just play flag football. So, uh, you know, it, it's, I also, though I'm very, uh, where I live, where I live in, in, for those who don't know, in, in San Francisco Bay Area, and I hear it all the time from local coaches, participation in football here is down. Right. Um, we're, we're a fairly well-educated area. Uh, and I think parents with all the options that exist here are telling their kids, Hey, go play lacrosse, go play water polo, go play tennis. Um, f- football's down, and I think it's happening on both coasts of the U.S. Well, the L.A. Times reporting course, yesterday it's down dramatically in California, not just Northern California, across the state. Yeah. So we were just in Houston over the weekend to play a preseason game with the 49ers, and that's what I said. I, I was telling friends in Houston, I think I will live long enough to see if you draw a line from Houston around the Gulf of Mexico all the way to South Florida, that is where the vast majority of football players will come from probably in the next within the next decade that will happen there will still be pockets in the US certain pockets where players will come from but that's going to be the bulk it's going to be a very geographic sport what what's your impression is richard sherman i mean he's always been outspoken obviously but is do most players agree with him <laughs> yeah i think so um gord i think if, if they could give truth serum uh <laughs> they absolutely would and, you know, we had a rugby player with the 49ers three years ago. Right. Uh, the 49ers signed a guy named Jared Hayne, who was a top-tier rug, rugger, brought in here, and he had a fabulous camp, and he was with us during the season. But he, the, the, just the nuances of yeah. trying to play professional football, it, the learning curve was way too steep for him. But I did talk to him while he was here about the tackling issue. This is three years ago, and he was – basically showing me how rugby tackling is taught. And he said, if you don't tackle like this, you don't play. You're right. immediately thrown out of the game in rugby. And you know, that's probably where football is going in a certain period of time. If you don't tackle shoulder first, um, you know, once we get past this initial enforcement period, if you don't tackle shoulder first, you're just out of the game. And that is some, something like the college rule. And it's hard. It's really hard on defenders, but it forces it forces change. And the other thing, Gord, it's going to do, to me, it's going to make a lot of people play offense. <laughs> a lot of young right. football players but, but where we they s- still do play are going, to, are going to want to play offense. We saw a flag thrown for Jacksonville where, where a running back put his helmet down and he got called for a penalty. Yeah, and that's, that's very – I've watched the NFL videos, the ones that are being sent to the coaches and to the players. I get to look at those, and that's their point, is that this is equal opportunity. It is – and the rule as written, Gord, is incredibly broad – it does, seem, that it, it, it does seem. It does seem that it does seem. There's, yeah. Yeah. There's no. There's no mention of forcefulness or intent. It's just, hey, if you lower your head and you hit a guy in the knee, the foul's on you. Right. Um, San Francisco has been interesting in football terms for a couple of years, and for a bunch of reasons, and and not the least of which is, it's where the whole kneeling during the anthem began, and and it remains a conversation. You were there when it started, and you've watched where it's gone to. How do you feel about sort of the the evolution of what began as Colin Kaepernick's protest against police brutality 
turning into a fight between basically NFL players and the president. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny, Gord. I think you were you were going there where I was going to head. I think what it's exposed is what's existed previously, which is a fight and a rift between the NFL players and the owners. I, I think that's really what this comes down to. And I think the guy in Washington, D.C. is just playing off of that. He, he understands brilliantly how to use things like that to his advantage, to play to his political advantage. So now, put that aside, where is it for football? I just think the NFL and the NBA, to me, Gord, if you just look at the, the constitutions of those two leagues, those are the two leagues that the vast majority of the players are African-American. And the NBA, take it a step further, has a fairly diverse crowd base, particularly here in California where I live. You know, it's, it's the most diverse uh, in terms of race, uh, of professional sports crowd I've ever seen. Why doesn't the NBA have this problem? Why does the NFL have it? And that's a question I've asked of some of the 49ers execs, thinking that would be the question I'd be asking. And I, I don't think, Gord, there's any doubt that part of the answer is that the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, has done a brilliant job of bonding with the league's better players, right. the ones that carry the flag for the league. Roger Goodell has not done that. And as a result, there's a huge chasm between owners and players that's going to lead to a pretty significant labor situation for the NFL in 2021. Do you think we'll ever see Colin Kaepernick play in the NFL again? No. No. And I'm not sure, Gord, I can't say this factually because I haven't spoken to him in three years, but I don't, I'm not convinced he wants to play. I wasn't convinced he wanted to play the last season he was with the 49ers. I don't think football was a priority for him anymore. That's his right. But uh, that's completely lost in the conversation about him because now it is become all about the, the social stance and not about football. Yeah. So I want to switch. Now, we got to talk about the 49ers this year because I think the Jimmy Garoppolo story is one of the most interesting stories in sports. I really do. I mean, he's 7-0 and as a starting quarterback in the NFL. How good is he? <laughs> well, man, he was awfully good those five games last year, Gordon. <laughs> he, elect- he electrified a fan base that needed something. Right. The, the 49ers had a good run of three years with Harbaugh as the coach. And um, other than that, it, outside of those three years, it's been a tough 15 or 17 years. So the fan base got lifted, and that's huge. The players love the guy. That's clearly most important, and it's why the combination of those two things that the organization gave him a huge contract in the offseason. Uh, he has the poise and the presence that you want from that position, he carries himself in a very confident yet not arrogant manner. He has the arm talent. There's no question about that. And I'm, I'll tell you, Gord, I think the only question left to be answered about Garoppolo is how does he handle the bad game? Because <laughs> he hasn't, hap- <laughs> hasn't happened happen yet. <laughs> right? The game where he throws three picks, the game where he gets sacked nine times, the game where he fumbles on a strip sack on the drive to try to win the game. It's going to happen. It just hasn't yet. And that's the only thing to me, that we really don't know yet about Garoppolo. Okay, now we've got to switch gears, because you are, as I mentioned, uh, I think the preeminent voice in tennis, and have been for a long time, and we're both big tennis fans. Um, U.S. Open coming up. Serena Williams is the 26th-ranked female player in the world. She'll be the 17th seed at the U.S. Open. I understand the way it works. That's, that's one of the most unusual circumstances we've seen in a long time, isn't it? Well, it's unprecedented. We, we've never had a a champion 
uh, return after giving. We've had players come back from from giving right. birth before. Um, most notably, Kim Kleisters, but no one near the level of, of Serena, Lindsay Davenport, also my one of my partners. They both did this, uh, but I, I I think what has happened with Serena this year, for the most part, Gord is 100 percent right. I think we're where we've advanced in our world today, no longer can anybody feel penalized or set back um, by giving birth. I have a daughter that gave birth last year, and she works in Silicon Valley, where the, the maternity policies are incredibly advanced, much right. to their credit. So I, you know, I just don't understand anybody that would argue against that for Serena Williams. Now the question becomes, can she, can she show up with virtually no preparation uh, and win the U.S. Open. She damn near did it at Wimbledon. So, you know, we've learned to never count her out. You know, she's a month <laughs> from her 37th birthday. Uh, and, and here's the other thing, Gordon. You know, I saw her in person in Indian Wells in March, and the reports now have come out. She was weighing 200 pounds when she played that match. I, I would not argue that because she, she shouldn't have been out there. And fast forward to July and to watch her play at Wimbledon where she had lost a good portion of weight. Yeah. And she looked not quite like the Serena of Young, but closer. And she gets to the final. I will not put anything past her at the Open. And on the men's side, Rafael Nadal will be the top seed. Roger Federer is ranked number two. Novak Djokovic, Novak Djokovic sixth. Andy Murray, remember him? <laughs> is coming back. <laughs> is coming back and, and hasn't played in a major, I think, since last year's Wimbledon. Ted, i I got to say, as, as a fan of the sport... I don't know if we realize how lucky we've been the last 15 years to have this many great players playing at the same time. Imagine if, to me, imagine if Borg, McEnroe, and Sampras were all in their primes at the same time. That's what yeah. we've had. You know, we were close in that when we had Agassi and Sampras together. Um, but this threesome, and now that Djokovic has regained his form, Gord, I think we can say that after what he just did in Cincinnati, um, that it's back to being three again. And it's extraordinary. My first Wimbledon in 2000, Pete Sampras became the all-time winningest Grand Slam champion. And we thought we'd never see anyone like him. Right, he's 13th. <laughs> okay, so now think about this. the top. So 18 years later, the top three men, uh, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, have a combined 50-5-0 major championships. That is truly sick, and we'll never see it. And now the, the, the beauty of what Djokovic has done is that he has every reason to believe he can keep going again, and that he can continue to win, and that it isn't just Rafa, can Rafa catch Roger? Hey, Novak might catch them. Uh, he's only 31, and since he seems to have his life straightened out, his tennis has gotten much better. And Federer won in Australia. I mean, it's not out of the question. I mean, he hasn't had great results at the U.S. Open in recent years, but he won in Australia not that long ago. So, I mean, could he be a factor? Well, he's a factor for sure. No, he's definitely a factor, Gord. I, I, you know, I, come on, he's, I think we're all in this thing. He's 37. He's defying father time. I'm not sure how much more we can ever ask a Federer in that regard. And what we've seen, I think, a couple of times, we saw it in the semi, the, the quarterfinal, excuse me, that he lost at Wimbledon to Kevin Anderson, and then a little bit in the final to Djokovic this past Sunday, is that there are days he looks 37, mm-hmm. and suddenly he just misses balls that he shouldn't miss. And that's, to me, nothing more than, hey, you're a human being. You wake up at 37 after playing the sport for 20 years, and you don't feel so great. 
and you miss balls you never used to miss. I just uh, so I, I've seen that a few more times this year from Roger, and it's saying that he's still the number two player in the world. All right, we got to go, but I got to ask you. You know, the Olympics, Wimbledon, French Open, all these great events you've done, the NFL. Where does being the analyst on Minnesota North Stars broadcasts in the early '80s <laughs> rank on that list for you? Uh, when I, well, Gordon and I spent some time together in Korea, and Gordon was gracious enough to take me around and let me see some hockey because I started as a hockey announcer a thousand years ago, and yes, I had a two-year. Um, but it was phenomenal. I mean, hockey was a great sport for me to get my entree with. And, uh, you know, there are days, Gord, I think we had a few of them together in Korea where I wish I had stayed with hockey, but, uh, but, but I have no complaints where yeah. life and, and the career took me, and especially tennis. And you referenced that. I fell into tennis by complete accident 30 years ago, and it's been the best thing that ever happened. It's a great sport, and uh, versatility is a great thing. And, Ted, you are really one of the great versatile announcers out there. Great talking to you, my friend, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for the kind words, Gord. Take care. All right. That's Ted Robinson, the radio voice of the 49ers, the voice of tennis on NBC. He's broadcast the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, you name it. And uh, some interesting insights on the upcoming U.S. Open and a look at the 49ers, who are interesting again, and that's important for the NFL. Back with more, you're listening to Toronto Today on TSN 1050 and the TSN app. Get that off now. Steve? Our engineer, Steve, who is pl- playing some great music between 11 and 1. That's Debbie Deb. What's the name of that song? Yeah, that's Look Out Weekend by Debbie Deb. Look Out Weekend by Debbie Deb. That's Andy Petrello's Friday afternoon song. For the, for the last segment. For the last segment, and I hate it. And so you played it on my first show by myself. Shame on you, Producer Joe. You're in the right time slot, and you won't be back at this time slot, so you have the weekend, basically. So look it's out. Gordon Tuesday. Miller's coming. It's Tuesday. I'm back on Overdrive on Friday afternoon with Brian Hayes. Um, we asked you the question in our first hour, what do you think Austin Matthews should make per year on his next contract? Um, 50% of you thought $11 million or more. And I think that's kind of the, the consensus of what people think will happen based on what John Tavares got. I guess the question I have is, how how much should you work to make sure your star players are happy? Here's an example. ESPN is reporting that the Raptors are going to hire Jeremy Castleberry, who's an employee of the San Antonio Spurs, a very good friend of Kawhi Leonard's. Played in high school with him, played college with him at San Diego State, has been with him in San Antonio. So there's an example of, reportedly, the Raptors are going to hire someone that will make him happier in Toronto. With William Nylander, the Leafs have a very simple case if they want to make it. Nylander has no arbitration rights unless he signs a free agent offer on an offer sheet with someone. He's got nowhere to go. If they want to say to him, hey, William, here's two years at $4 million. Take it or leave it. You can go back and play in Sweden. He has no choice. But is that in the Leafs' best interest? And the specter of P.K. Subban hangs over contract negotiations like that. The Montreal Canadiens gave P.K. Subban a so-called bridge contract, a two-year deal. He went and won the Norris Trophy, got in a contract dispute, and it's been alleged, not proven, that ownership caved and gave him $9 million a year. So how far should a team go to make players happy? In the 70s, you did what the team told you to do, and you accepted what they offered you, and you didn't know what other players made. So if Austin Matthews looks at Jack Eichel's contract and says, I want more than that, how, how far should the Leafs go to make sure that they make the player that is their best player and might very well be the best player in Leafs history at some point happy? 
it's a real tough conversation to have. And you certainly don't want to get in fights with your best players. But there is a salary cap, and it's unforgiving. So there's a lot to think about, about keeping players happy and making sure your team is good as well. That'll do it for Toronto Today. Andy McNamara is coming up on the Scott MacArthur Show. I'll be back on Overdrive on Friday. Thanks for listening on TSN Radio and the TSN app.